we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Guys, gals, and non-binary pals, I'm really excited to bring you this episode. When our producer edited the show, she realised I didn't introduce today's guest. I got to interview the lovely Jason, business partner of one Sam Rosenbaum, to tell us all about their new adventure, All Access Pass. Hey Sam, how are you going? Yeah, going well, Hannah. How are you? Well, let me tell you a story. So. Oh, it's going to be good. (laughs) Sounds good. My 18-year-old daughter, and yes, I know I don't look old enough to have an 18-year-old daughter, but here we are. Reality. She is on the NDIS and yesterday came to me with one of my, one of the many brochures I have and asked me about a program. And I said, oh, yeah, you could do that. You've got an NDIS plan. And she looked at me puzzled. So I brought up MyGov and realised she's no longer linked on my MyGov because she turned 18 in August. And I went, oh, shit. So then I looked at her plan and her plan ended in August And here I was going, okay, so I'm guessing they auto-extended it and nobody told me, which is a bit annoying. Convenient. Classic story. But also it's self-managed, but she doesn't have a MyGov. And so it's self-managed, but she's no longer on my MyGov, so I can't actually use it. And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) So I called the call centre And I said, so what do I do? Which I sort of knew I have to become a nominee. But I was asking them. And they said, you've got to become a nominee. After he hummed and hard for about 20 minutes. And then said, oh, let me go check with someone. And then he comes back to me and he goes, there's a form on the website. Fill it in, send it in. And I went, hmm. I don't think that's correct from what I remember of the process, but okay. And he said, go to your nearest one and told me which is the nearest one. Then I got on web chat just in case. And I went, so web chat, what is happening here? And web chat says, oh no, there's nothing online. There's nothing, there's no form they can give me over web chat. I have to physically go in with my 100 points of ID. And I'm like, okay, annoying, but can do. So I went in 
And the office I went to, it said, oh, we closed this office in April. And I'm like, okay, so the National Call Centre, the web chat and the NDIS website all say this office is open, but okay, let's go to the other one. So drive a little bit further and go to one. Now, this office just says Services Australia. It doesn't indicate which parts of Services Australia. It doesn't say NDIS, nothing like that. So I was confused. But this is where it all pointed to, okay, going in. And just remember, I'm dragging my daughter around with me because they had said she needs to be with me to be able to say she gives consent for me to be the nominee. So I walk into this office and there's a woman at reception and I said, I'm a little confused. I'm looking for the NDIS office. And she goes, oh, well, do you have an appointment? And I said, no, no, I don't have an appointment. And she goes, well, what are you here for then? And I tried to explain and she goes, okay, I'm a bit confused. I'm going to go talk to someone. And I'm like, yeah, like, <laughs> you're confused. Um, <laughs> so then she comes back and she goes, okay, sit over in this special bit. Someone will come to you. And I'm like, okay. So we wait there for a bit and then a woman comes out and gets us and we sit in this weird, like, phone booth phone booth looking space age thing <laughs> and she goes in one side of it on one side of the desk and we go in the other side of it. It's weird. And then I explained again why I was there that I called the call centre, this is what happened. I tried web chat. I tried going to the other office. Here I am. And she went, oh, because we've had five people before you come in today with the same story. And actually, <laughs> there is a form you have to fill out and the National Call Centre can email it to you and they're supposed to do that. So, And then what you do is you bring it in with all your stuff and, and then they put it all in. Because it turns out, they need a copy of a birth certificate. So your driver's licence or passport or any of those are not a first... A first proof of ID point. Pro, yeah, it's a secondary yeah. ID. And I was like, this is makes no sense, but whatever. But I don't carry my birth certificate around with me, strangely enough. So she said, that's okay. What we'll do, fill in this form. I'll get the bits of ID you do have with you. Email me your birth certificate as soon as you get home and then I'll put it through then. We'll, we'll do it like that just because so many people have come in, you've come all this way, you've got your daughter here, I'm going to help you out. And I was like, yes. <laughs> I almost want to say like this sounds like at least this is somebody coming to the party to sort of help out, but I'm hesitant to like fully say that. I'm hoping that we're getting, you, you, yeah, <laughs> let's keep on hearing this. So that is, that is the end of the story, actually. She was the most helpful person along the way, 
But even she was a little frustrated because I was the sixth person she'd seen that day and she said, oh, at our next team meeting, we're going to be bringing this up because this is getting ridiculous. The National Call Centre should know better. And so at the moment I have no idea because she didn't email me back to say she got it or anything, but I assume now my documents are on their way to the NDIA for someone to then, there's a special group of people apparently who approve or deny these nominee applications and if any slight thing is wrong, they just decline it and don't tell you why. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) So, yeah, that was... That was my bananas story. And I'm someone who understands this system and am relatively intelligent. I can't imagine how difficult this is for people who have less understanding of this system, mm. how difficult this sort of thing is to get done. And I think it's it's really poor on the NDIS's behalf that, that this occurred. Yeah, and it is a annoyingly frustratingly repetitive story that we 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 hear in terms of getting information especially from the call center so kudos to that 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 front staff for doing her best and not making you go home and go get your birth certificate to come back oh yeah i think if she'd done that i would have just about lost whatever little restraint i had left that day because I was slightly losing my mind at that point and just like, what is going on here? It's it's like a s- series of comical events all, you know, one after the other. And I still cannot use my daughter's plan because it's still self-managed and I have no access to it. So we're trapped just at the minute. That's frustrating. Well, one of the um, the major takeaway I got from that was um, the Doctor Who reference with the little phone boot. That says it's <laughs> very um, very interesting. But with Service Australia, um, it is one of the most difficult agency to deal with across Australia. It's extremely difficult. So, especially where you're saying about you understand the system, you understand how they work, and being an intelligent individual is is is, is a bonus. But Looking from that and, you know, a lot of people who have their own, whether it's mental disability or other, and how do they navigate this system? How? When they make it so blatantly difficult, it's like to, it's like when you're working for an organization, but they can't fire you and they force you to to, to quit. It's like they're forcing people off the system, which is ridiculous. But yeah. Yeah. It's all, I heard I um, was reading a story regarding the Centrelink holding music. And it was almost like along the lines of that they use that music very specifically to see, to like drive people to hang up before the call gets connected. And then because it's not actually connected, they don't treat, that they don't count those numbers in certain connection points and stuff like that. Apparently it's that's not true, but <laughs> the end result very much feels like it. Well, actually, on the ABC, they've now got these little clips called WTFQ, 
Yes, so And good. one of them was of one of the Chaser boys and it just has escaped my memory and he actually investigates exactly that, the Centrelink hold music. And one person had this idea of what if it's your favourite piece of music that they just play over and over and over and is it the music itself or is it the fact that you have to wait on hold for two hours to then speak to someone who may or may not be helpful and essentially that was the issue was not so much the music itself but rather the 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 issue of holding for a service that may or may not be useful well that's very true but um we've got a bit of a different podcast today we do i'm so excited so we've got sam and Jason today. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you. This is my first um, first time as a guest here. So Sam talks a lot about it. I can't wait to get in and just, you know, share my two cents, as they call it. So yes. So yeah, J- Jason's my uh, my business partner in our, in our new little venture, which is quite exciting for us. Yes. And this new venture is why we wanted to have this episode. So we are going to structure this episode similarly to how we do normal episodes, but just talking to Sam about, uh, Sam and Jason about their exciting new thing. So Sam and then Jason, where did you grow up? Well, um, I'll keep mine short and sweet because if anyone wants to know more details, just jump back to episode one. But um, I grew up in uh, Geelong and the Great Ocean Road down in Victoria with my family and that was a lovely little experience. Great, great part of the world. And oh, Jason? Um, fortunately, mine can't be that short and sweet, but I'll try. Um, I grew up across 14 different countries, predominantly in Jamaica. My father is from Jamaica so we spent quite a lot of time there in fact I was there only a few weeks ago um it's a beautiful little island lots of coconut I love coconut <laughs> That's lucky. I, I really dislike coconut in any form so I can't have enough so yeah total opposite here yeah so uh that's that's where I spend a significant part of my life um until I went to university back in the US and then moved to Europe before moving here. Huh, that is very cool. So what whereabouts in the US did you do university? Oh, I went to Portland, Portland University. That's where I did part of my degree and the other part I did in Howard's University, not Harvard. People tend to mistake the two. Howard's is in DC. Oh, that's that's pretty exciting. It is. <laughs> They're two cold places as well. That would have been a pretty dramatic difference from growing up in Jamaica. It is. And then Ireland where it's just cold all year round. So <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> yep, yep. So what brought you to Australia? Ah, uh, love. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a... That's cool. We're going to leave it there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's why. So, Sam and Jason, our next question is, how did you get into the disability sector? Um, Well, I've had a pretty diverse lived experience through family members with disability, part of the aged care, and then as part of, I was also a guardian 
for a um, 21-year-old um, just as uh, the NDIS rolled out in Queensland. And so I had a fair bit of getting her plan initiated, getting her supports set up as well, um, looking at my mum's supports as well at the same time. And then it sort of just grew from there, though I was very adamant for quite a long time that I wouldn't actually work in the sector. I was, I had lots of friends that saw me deal with mom and the other people that I was caring for going, you would be really good at this. And I was like, oh no, I, I, I do this enough. I don't need this as a day job. No, thank you. But thank you. I'm, I'm sure. And then it, it progressed from there and I got the opportunity to uh, run a support coordination business and then kind of found my love affair with compliance and disability supports and got sucked into the rabbit hole. That's fair. It's it's an awesome place to work. I do get the idea of not wanting to do for work what you do at home because as someone who does that, it is sometimes a little bit much, but I do I do love it and you you can't take it away from me. <laughs> <laughs> so Jason, what about you? Oh, hmm, what about me? Um <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think um, the NDAs as, um, on a whole can be quite um, frightening at times. I became part of the all NDAs um, working environment because of Sam, because um, the company that Sam was um, the director for, I, by the way, I'm from a corporate background. So when Sam's like, hey, can you come over? You know, I need some help with this. And I jumped over and it was, it was something new um you know i think my training training wheel is is off but still trying to balance um the way how the the nda sector works and i, I think it's it's it does have its um its benefits and it does have its ups and downs as well the way how the sector works the way how you want to to move things the way how you want to actually do things sometimes you have to be aware that fundamental is the um the participant that's your your main concern and that will always be centered to what you're doing so again it's something that i am not necessarily balancing it's something that i am trying to submerge myself into because it's a lot to learn as well yeah absolutely well i'm glad that sam brought you in kicking and screaming <laughs> <laughs> There was a lot of kicking. Oh, it muffled me. I, I couldn't scream. <laughs> <laughs> Chloroform may or may not have been used. <laughs> um, coming from a corporate background, I do think there is a really strong need for people from a corporate background in disability when we do have private companies because we need to make sure our compliance and structures are still there that are the same across other companies. And I call all of that sort of thing business business. The business that I actually do is different to like business business and um, because it's that business business stuff that I don't understand. <laughs> and so I'm like, yeah, that, that sits over there and I take care of it sometimes when I can when I can be bothered <laughs> and it really probably should happen more often. But so I, I appreciate you lending your skills to our sector. Thank you so much. Anytime. <laughs> it's been very helpful. Thanks, Jason. <laughs> okay.
<laughs> so Sam and Jason, you have embarked on a new adventure. Do you want to tell our audience a little bit about All Access Pass? Yeah, so All Access Pass is essentially runs a program and we've developed a, a framework called the Festival Access Program. And that comes from my my background as an events manager and in, in, in the hospitality sector as well, where I love events. I love all of the, the frilliness and stuff like that. My job now has changed quite a bit, but I still get drawn to events. And over COVID, uh, when Queensland had the lessening of the lockdown, I don't know, the lock, we're the lockdown in that period where we had a, a lockdown break. Um, I was lucky enough to get jump on the staff team for a a, a Bushdorf, which is like for those that don't know Bushdorf, it's very heavy techno, electric kind of music set in the middle of bumfuck nowhere and comp- remote, rural, nothing there. It's it's a complete nature site, and you know, they bring in. Uh, food vendors, stores, lighting equipment, staging equipment, all your artists are there. And in the lead up to that, they had a launch party. And at the launch party, there was probably about 350-odd people there, and there was four people in a wheelchair. And those people, unfortunately, couldn't go because the site was not accessible. They didn't have disability toilets on site. Uh, They hadn't really planned or catered for that. But there was a clear need there that people with a disability want to attend and participate and be engaged and engaging with the festival scene. So after that, sort of sat in the back of my mind going, there's a real need here for festival organisers to lift their game and create a more inclusive environment for people to come along. Dylan Orcott is doing a fantastic job in that space, making a lot of advocacy and working with lots of different people to try and increase that. But there's still a long way to go. So Jason and I sort of sat down and were thinking on how how do we make this a reality? And the Festival Access Program sort of started its initial egg stage. And we got planning and we're looking at it going, there's there's lots of risks, there's lots of lots of hurdles and barriers. Camping is a really big issue as well with as part of the scene the accessibility, being on grass. There's lots of little different components that able-bodied people don't necessarily think of when they're going, let's go to a festival, let's go camping. It's That's easy. You just need a tent. Who cares about anything else? But the reality for a person with um, accessibility needs is not that easy. So we really worked hard to work out how do we include and support people to attend festivals and events, which is a real part of the Australian way of life, culture. There's a million and one events around the country. Uh, some do a really good job of accessibility, but unfortunately not not everyone does or has the ability or the capabilities to do that. So we thought we would sort of create a little bit of a bridging gap and work with our event provider, event organisers and our team and people with a disability and try and create that inclusion element and make sure that people that want to attend can be can attend and can be supported to attend. Yeah, that sounds amazing because we know that a lot has changed in like concert venues and stadiums to accommodate people with wheelchairs and support workers and now people can do that but festivals is the next sort of frontier. (laughs) Yeah. So I love that 
you're looking at this. So what is the access, what is the all access pass base camp? So at each event, we have our camping area and we work with event organizers to try and find a less populated space within their event area, their event precinct. Um, so then we can help work with people with sensory needs and noise uh, where noise becomes a problem. So that's kind of our base camp. We have our kitchen, we have our little office, uh, we have our medications, to, uh, our nursing station. So we have it bring a nurse on, on site. Uh, so our camp nurse, and they sort of help with medications, any health and uh, health issues that we need to be treated while we're on site. Uh, on site. Uh, Long-term wise, we are looking at trying to be able to accommodate and support people with high care needs so that they can participate and be engaged in festivals as well. There's still a little bit more work that we need to do to fully be able to realise and support people with those kind of high care needs, but there are starting to be lots of suppliers and different manufacturers and that, that are starting to really enter this space that are providing some really awesome assistive technology, some really awesome like bathrooms. Uh, there's a cool uh, organization called Placeable and they have a, a change room facility that essentially is a mobile change room, probably about a six by a six by three sort of space or maybe a bit smaller than that. Uh, but it's got a shower, a toilet that's fully wheelchair accessible a end-to-end -end ceiling hoist as well, and then a change ta change tables that uh, is full for full adult size and is sort of raises up and down automatically. So then there's full safety for staff that are working with those participants, so it's at the right height for them, um, which is really cool to see because it's it's those kind of facilities are not <laughs> you don't find them in an open green field. So uh, organisations like Placeable and other accessibility um, organisations. They're coming into the market more often now, so it's really great to see that. And they're starting to work with um, providers and different event organisers to make that more, uh, increase the accessibility options. And, yeah. of course, that's something that we will be pushing to ensure that these things not necessarily flood the market, but that it's there. So in terms of our long-term um, goal is to ensure that not necessarily we're no longer needed, but that it's there. So for us, it's not about, you know, make a million bucks, sell the companies, more about ensuring that accessibility is there where people who have a disability shouldn't be afraid to want to do something. They should feel as if they have the, the system is there. Um, there's one thing that I read a few, a few months ago is where if something don't, if you're not affected by something, often we don't look at it because it's not in front of mind. And until it affects you, you're not aware. So that's what we're trying to do is to not necessarily make it affect us, but to keep it front of mind. And we're never going to always have the 100% right, but it's something that we're always going to strive for. Yeah. I won't be disappointed if we make don't, don't, don't have a like, continual need and event organizers take this on, which I really hope a lot of any event organizers listening start looking at accessibility needs because it's needed in the industry. I love this thought and the passion that you are both showing towards this. It's it's really awesome. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the festival you've the first festival that you will be attending? Yeah, so it we our first event is at the end of this year at the Woodford Folk Festival up in Woodford in Queensland. Um so it's for anyone that doesn't know, it's a it's a folk festival that's runs for seven days. 
uh, that have lots of different music, arts, performance programs, talks. It's a great space. It's a great event for anyone that hasn't been there and those that have been there uh, love it quite passionately. A very unique experience all up. And I, it's been, I was really excited uh, when we were sort of looking at what our first event would be that we align with. And Woodford came quite as a standout event. So they already do quite a lot in terms of um, trying to have inclusion and accessibility needs already within it. They have a specific sort of camping section that supports, ha- has the facilities and infrastructure in place. Uh, still a fair bit to go, but they are, have they, they've got uh, inclusion and dis- disability support managers in there that actually, th- that's their job is to look at what's next, how they're going to um, keep promoting inclusion. So it was a great alignment and then it's been fantastic working with the the uh front of house team at the uh woodford they um have been really accommodating they've sort of for lack of a better term rolled out the red carpet almost going what can we do to make this a reality and it's been a fantastic experience to work with them and i really would love to see all of the events that we're looking at as well take that kind of lead and, and approach so yeah we'll see see how it sort of progresses over the next couple of years. But yeah, we're really excited for Woodford. I think it's going to be a fantastic couple of days. But yeah, there's not, you don't have to come for the full seven. <laughs> so we are doing seven, five, uh, five and three night STA options. Yes. We have a lot of things um, planned and and I think it's going to be an amazing um, event uh, for a person I've never camped before. I am so looking forward to it. it it's I, I went and viewed the, the campground and it, it, it seems absolutely wonderful. So yeah, definitely recommend um, people trying it out. So yeah, pulling you out of your comfort zone a bit in this. So much. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome. And I like the idea that you are getting started, even if you don't have absolutely everything that your sort of dream and goal is. And this first one will be a really great test run of your idea. What if I've never camped before? How can you help me? I've never camped before, Sam. Well, don't worry. Jason's in the same boat as well. <laughs> uh, we, we're teaming up. So we've got a lot of, we've got uh, teamed up with Tent City, who also work with Woodford to supply their tents. So they're, they're, we're using their tents as well. So they're quite, there's a couple of different options. We're also looking at, how wheelchairs can be supported in tents as well. Uh, anyone that's gone camping knows that there's a bit of a lip and sometimes that's a bit of a trip hazard. Uh, so we're working through some of those obstacles and potential risks that could be that come up from camping, not to mention the million one and pegs and tech cords and ropes and stuff that come around. But we do have, our, we are looking at it for our staff that have experience within uh, the camping background and have been camping or been to festivals quite regularly. So People that haven't been camping will team pair up with someone that's got a bit more experience, so you won't be completely left in the dark. Plus, there'll be quite a few other people that have might be that probably be in that same experience that might not necessarily have gone te- uh, camping before. But it's not like we're going out in the bush or out in there's no facilities. We are bringing in wheelchair accessible bathrooms and showers as well on site, so we're bringing in additional facilities and amenities on top of what's already Woodford and the existing site that we're staying on has, um, just to ensure that we're able to fully support any needs that we may have. Yeah, so it should be a great experience. 
we're very much looking forward to it. And if you're new to camping, we hope we can uh, make you love camping. There is facilities. Yeah. Well, that's all Jason cares about. As long as there's a hot shower, I think we're good. Um, I'm going to test that theory out and drag him camping for my birthday. So I'll uh, let you know when uh, our our recording session happens after that and report back to everyone. <laughs> what if a participant has mealtime supports or dietary requirements? How do you go about catering for that in the camping environment? Okay, so in terms of dietary requirement and um, mealtime preparation, so that will be a part of our intake form because we want to understand, for example, myself, I do have a, a dairy-free um, dietary needs, so I know that I can't have anything with dairy, and et cetera. Sometimes I actually forgot to say no dairy in that because it just becomes this thing where I stick to meals that I know, yeah. So what we're trying to do is ensure that in our intake form, if a participant can't have certain thing, then we capture that and we prepare our meals accordingly. So that's, yeah, we 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 um, anticipate a lot of that as well. Awesome. Yeah, that's the same with like the medications and uh, um, any other support needs that participants might have. So our, our, we do have a pretty extensive intake process. The nature of the ev- events and the risks that are, are just inherently with events we really want to work with each participant to really understand uh, the needs that they have, the potential risks that are associated with any of their disabilities or physical needs um, to really ensure that we can support in the first place. So we don't, we're not saying yes to everyone because we can't support everyone uh, as much as I am trying to do high care needs. Sometimes it's just not going to be feasible. Unfortunately, we are working to to try and change that. But that's still a bit, that's a bit of a process. But yeah, our intake process goes through a proper, uh, a full personal assessment, your needs-based assessment, and then we do a risk assessment. And then based off that risk assessment, we then decide that, yes, we can support you. These are our controls in place that we have. Or unfortunately, we can't put the controls in place to bring that risk down to a level that we are comfortable in being able to support you. Overall, we've got a pretty high risk tolerance for our participants, specifically with the service delivery. But there's still a bit of a limit to that. And we don't want to be endangering anybody's health and safety and well-being. So we do want to work with everyone and anyone that we can, but there there will be some limits at, at this point in time uh, that we don't need to sort of take into account. I love this because I think it is really important for a provider to say, when they can't do something as much as to say, yes, we can do something because it is a huge bugbear of mine that a lot of providers just want to say yes to everyone because all they're seeing is money and actually they can't support everyone. So saying for me as a support coordinator, saying no is awesome because then I know that the people you are taking, you genuinely can support. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we do. We're, I spent a bit of, as one might expect, my background and what I normally talk about on this podcast, um, I've spent an extensive amount of time looking at how we, from end to end, how we look at our, the events that we're losing, selecting and going to, how we support, look at participants that we are able to take, how we look at the potential risks that we might 
not initially be able to go say yes to straight off the bat, but then look at the controls or the minimization of those risks and impacts and then do a bit of work, look at support, uh, speak to like support coordinators, other support providers within that uh, participant support networks. And then to get a really comprehensive understanding and then we can go safely, yes or no, we can ensure that you're going to have be, you're going to be safe and provide safe supports. What is the ages of the people that you're taking to Woodford? So we are mostly focusing on uh, providing supports to adults for a couple of reasons, just because we've got alcohol involved. We're on an event site. We're not explicitly saying no to under 18s, but we take it on a case by case scenario and run through that intake process to make sure that we've got safe supports because working with children and having adults involved becomes very regulatory complex. Uh, so short answer is 18 plus. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there probably really will sensible. be some, some exce- circumstances that we might um, look at it or we might be even looking at a minus festival and do under 18s. For that specific event, but most of the time we're looking at keeping it pre-adults only or kids only. Yeah, I think unless there's an adult who has some children and and that's, you know, the reason they want to go is all as a family, but they need the support of support workers to do it and specialty yeah. tents or whatever, I can see that. Yeah. So you are allowing participants to consume alcohol while there? Yes, we are. We very much advocate for choice and control and dignity of risk. And if I can do something at a festival, why should someone else not be allowed to? As long as it's um, within the legal confines of the law, I have no objection to anyone doing what they feel is right for themselves. Again, the fundamental about a person with a disability is giving them the the choice for them to feel as if they're whole as well. So I 100% respect that. Yeah, because Australian festivals are known for there being a lot of alcohol. So I appreciate that because I firmly believe in dignity of risk myself. Yeah. And yeah, we, we've, we've spoken about this, like when I first started having this idea, we, we, you and I sort of had that conversation around how do we safely engage with alcohol and also nature of events is that there are illegal substances on, around as well. So how do we work to support and keep the participants that are coming along safe and secure and also, but also balancing that really fine line around their autonomy and and keeping your staff safe because yeah. if someone takes something in particular and then become violent that's also not great so, no um, so that goes back to one of my the, the very extensive risk management plans and strategies so um but yeah so part of, part of that is we do in in the lead up to each event we're running a orientation or an induction sort of uh, session with all the participants where they get to meet their their support staff that we call camp support crew that we're calling it. So all our, we're not support workers, we're crew. So you'll get to meet your crew, you get to meet the other campers, um, and then we'll run through uh, the uh, about what's happening at the event, where we'll meet you, pick you up, that sort of stuff. A lot of this will be also organised beforehand. But you'll be able to get to understand a little bit more about what the experience is going to look, feel and be like. 
And then as part of that, we'll, we run through safety, health and safety, as well as some sexual safety as well, because you're in a bit of a public space as well. So making sure that uh, people understand about consent and those things that come along with it. The orientation day, I think, is a, such an awesome idea. And I don't think enough STA providers doing camping or things like this think of that. Being able to meet the crew and others you'll be around 24-7 <laughs> for three, five or seven days, I think is really important. Yeah, especially when you're looking at where participants might be on a two-to-one support ratio as well, and they might not know the other participant that they're getting supports with. So we're, we're, we're trying to work out how to, because events can be scary, especially if you've never been to one, even as an event manager or the background that I've got within events, I still get a, that, that little first event sort of jitters when I'm first rocking up to a site or something like that. So it, it was more of a how do we slowly engage and introduce the people, the environment and what you're going to do rather than waiting until day one and then wham, bam, you're at, at, at a site and you've got camps, tents set up and things are happening. So this was a way for us to help smooth that transition and ensure that everyone's sort of fun. Plus it also means that as much as we try and match participants and support workers and that uh, and the like as best as we can, you just don't know until you get to meet that person whether or not you're going to click and gel. So it also gives participants or participants the opportunity to go, hey, I, I'm i not feeling the right fit here. Is there something that you can do? And we definitely will work with those participants and readjust supports as needed there or find alternative options that we can still continue to support that participant. Yeah, awesome. So Sam and Jason, if... I signed up to a seven, the seven days, and by day four, I've gone camping sucks. It all sucks. I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> Actually, I'm Look, sick of being around. Jason will constantly. be right there with you, but not allowed to leave. The difference <laughs> with you with participants is we've got we're definitely able to help support this. So if there, at any point a participant's like, "This is just way too much for me." I wanted to do this, but I can't. That's that's cool. So what we we do have a a couple of vans that we're using to transport participants to and from our camping site to the main event site. So if, and we're also going to do back back and forth runs as well. So there are options if people need to tap out and go, nah, this is too much for me. We can easily get you back to back to home or to your accommodation sort of setting or back to family. And yeah, no no issues there. So that, that was definitely one thought that I did have as part of this whole planning sort of stage and when we're looking at it going, what if? Yeah, because seven days is a long time. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why we've got the five the five and three option on top of it. So yeah. they, us as a crew will be up there pretty much from, I think we're going up Christmas Eve to start our sort of process and set up. So we'll be spending Christmas there. But it, it is like we're, we're going to be on site almost nine days. And that, that's a bit of time as well. So we can fully appreciate and stuff like that. So we've got the option for people that do want to add that are that more active, active or do want to do that more intensive sort of stay. And that, so that's why we've got the the seven option. But most people I'm sort of feeling will probably choose the five or three day to slowly ease into it. But I do have that feeling that um you might want more after that. Absolutely. <laughs> I know I do. I love it. 
Yeah. <laughs> more, more. When's the so next fun. one? Talking about the NDIS, so what line item does this fall under? We are using the STA line items for this. Uh, we are charging full pricing limits. But just so people at home, because I did have a couple of people uh, reach out on Facebook and a few other socials asking about this. And I inherently don't necessarily like charging the maximum rate, but with the way that we're trying to provide supports and what we're trying to ultimately achieve, it does come at a very high price. So we are bringing in tents, we are bringing in disability toilets, we are bringing in our our full kitchen uh, equipment, uh, fridges, that type of stuff, which doesn't come cheap, especially when you include transport costs, uh, staffing and labour costs. Because we also, so on top of this, your one-to-one support, we have that nurse that I spoke about earlier, but we also have other support staff that are coming to ensure that everything's running smoothly, which was really important to me. The other thing that we're doing is we're bringing backup support workers so if anyone at any point, well, for, for a couple of reasons. One is if a support worker gets sick and we're in Woodford, which is an hour and a half from Brisbane, we can't necessarily call up and go, hey, I need a support worker now because that's not going to happen. So we're looking at how we can ensure to keep that continuity of support as well as also ensuring staff downtime because seven days of supports can be full on for anyone that's sort of been in that environment before. So we're making sure that staff have that regular downtime as well for themselves. So staff will be sort of tapping in and tapping out with those supports, with those participants. Or if someone gets sick, then we've got that sort of backup. And the nurse will be also acting out as a bit of a split shift. And Jason and I will be filling in as needed as well as playing camp cook and driver (laughs) and all the wonderful things that comes along with running a small business. Exactly, exactly. But no, um, just to, you know, uh, back up what Sam said, is about ensuring that everything is participant-centric. Everything that we're doing is ensuring that they're centered to what we're doing. So, you know, price is one factor, but where everything that the participant need is there for them. So comfort is there. Yeah. So, yeah, we've got a um a sensory tent that we're doing. So it's going to be a fully blacked out tent. We're going to have some bean bags. There'll be some other sensory toys and items. We're bringing around some headphones as well. So if you haven't brought your own headphones or something like that um, and you're feeling a bit overwhelmed, you can sort of go tap and twaddle off and just chill out until your heart's content and you're recharged and come out and join the rest of the, the campers and crew when you're at, at your own sort of time. Except I might be going to be in there 50% of the time. It's <laughs> a possibility. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, I I think that's, that's we'll question where, them. <laughs> where I'll be a lot stroking cushions. <laughs> I completely understand that amount of money. I believe you are asking people for a deposit. How does that work? Yeah, so when we're looking at how we price this up, what line items, where it fits within the pricing arrangement, pricing limits. One of the key standout points is that the PayPal <laughs> doesn't allow purchasing event tickets on a technicality from an NDIS plan. So to help maintain that, we are doing a deposit and a co-payment. So that helps pay for the ticket. However, we are pretty heavily subsidizing that courtesy of our, our part of ourselves and then part of the events as well. We're sort of working together. 
so then that also means that they're putting in for their event ticket and then the rest of the supports and everything else that we're providing is coming out of the NDIS. So then that helps protect the participant from potential issues there. It helps protect us from essentially fraud because we're not allowed to do uh, go outside of those pricing arrangements, even as a non-registered provider. So yeah, so the idea is that when you sign up based on your seven, five or three days or your camping options, you'll pay a deposit. It's pretty low. I think the five days is $110. So we've tried to put it, keep it at a, a reasonable amount that most people can afford. Um, and trying to do it in a way that doesn't necessarily stress out anyone as well, but then keeps within the pricing arrangements. And then if on the off chance that we have a have a, a, a blowout on the event or something happens with any of our events that we're choosing to do with, that, that get, gets refunded as well. In terms of if it floods or if there's fire. Yeah, so if the, event, if the event organisers have to cancel the event themselves, we can't do anything about that, but then we'll still be re- refunding ticket prices as well for that. Oh, or well, refunding deposits that have been put on for it. So uh, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a different point, a point of difference there. But I was more putting my compliancy head hat on and going, how do we do this in a way that is actually feasible and within the rules? Yeah, absolutely. What if I need to bring an assistance animal? Is that possible when camping? Yeah, so we part of our event assessment and identification, we look at a couple of key areas. So how the event organisers put their governance and planning in place, what operational things they have, sensory needs, as well as amenities and facilities. Part of that, we look at what they already do, and we generally only align with events that already have those elements in it. So Woodford is, 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 as I said earlier, they're fantastic. They're already making a pretty strong pathway for inclusion and accessibility needs. And they also still accept, uh, they allow guide dogs and assistance animals to come on with participants. So we get to still do the same. And then any other future events that we're doing, we'll be looking for that same kind of criteria and all working. If there's a specific event that we're really keen on, but they might not be quite at that level where we need them to be to say, yes, this is a go. We'll get in touch with them. We'll work out how we can work with those organisers to lift up their game to be able to then go, yeah, we can do this. I I really love that. Can you please give the people the dates of Woodford? So day the seven days starts on the 26th. Five days is on the 28th. And then for the three-day night, for the three-night, sorry, is on the 30th of December. And then we're back in Brizzy on the 2nd of January. So we get the New Year's, which is fun. Oh, amazing. Fireworks. Yeah. Woodford do a great New Year's uh, celebration. So they have a whole ceremony thing. They've got a whole uh, visual arts display. They've got performances going on. They do a three-minute candlelight reflection, So, which is kind of cool. So everyone sort of gets around. There's kind of like, cool, somberish meditation, reflection music. We all hold a candle and there's a whole heap of people in, in this like area. And yeah, it's, it's quite an experience. And then in the mornings they do um, sunrise tours and stuff like that. So there's walking o- options that you can go out, enjoy, watch the sunrise set on the new year. Yeah, no, it's going to be great fun. I've seen sunrise. It's the sunset in reverse. I don't need to see the sunrise. 
I feel like there's a bit of bias against mornings coming from the other end of the microphone. <laughs> yes, my bias against morning is that it's the morning and I have to get up. Yeah, that's such a good time of the day. Jason, <laughs> I'm quite the morning person where Jason's kind of the opposite. So I, I, I'm quite excited for that part myself. I feel you, Jason. Thank you. Thank you so much. For those listening at home, Jason and Hannah's faces are still grumpy and are reflecting each other's. <laughs> well, 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 try. So if people have liked what they've heard... Where can they find out more information and how do they do a referral to you? So we have a couple of options. We are on Facebook and we're, we're on LinkedIn as well. Uh, just look up All Access Pass Support Services. Um, we have a website going live very soon, which will be allaccesspass.au, no.com there. And our email address is hello at allaccesspass.au, which we'll shove in the podcast info. But yeah, so uh, we've also got a sign-up form that you can click through and we'll get back in touch and we'll start that intake process. That generally starts off with uh, a call, we get to know you, and then we walk through those steps to get understand your needs and look at those risks. Um, then we sort of get through the service agreement and then we'll see you at orientation. Awesome. Awesome. I'm so, so excited for it. Yeah. And as we always end the show, Sam and Jason, in your ideal world, what would the future of the NDIS look like? So I think I love if, this question. If Jason we love this question. was a cartoon, his eyes just bulged right out of his head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those of you listening. <laughs> it, it just needed the ogre. <laughs> Um, no, so in, in my ideal world, what would the NDIS look like? It would be more inclusive. It would be more accessible as a starting point. And foremostly following the actual principles in the first damn place. Because we all know that there's like a big talk and walk around, talk around how we're meant to be doing things. But how can providers do what we're meant to be doing? if the regulators and the bodies in charge aren't doing what they're meant to be doing in the first place. If we take your um, story at the start of today's podcast as an example, that was a massive failure. And if if your daughter didn't have you there to support her, that's just a massive failing on the agency's behalf. And even still, it, it failed you for that because you you called up, you did a message and then you went to a support centre and then you had to go to another one and you're still not solved. No. And your job is a support coordinator. <laughs> so in my ideal world, it would be we actually walk the walk. I absolutely love this answer and I absolutely want to see this. I think one of the biggest things it comes down to is government ministers understanding disability and then it comes down to the training of the people at the call centre because the training of the people at the call centre at the moment is abysmal and it's very frustrating, <laughs> very yeah. frustrating. And it probably also needs to come down to that level of those individuals actually wanting to do their job properly and to do that they need to understand 
the people that they're servicing. Yeah. Okay. Just to want to point a different a different perspective on that. I think sometimes when you're working in the call center as well, because being a person that used to be a call center personal trainer, a lot of time it goes towards KPI, and that's what their man, their leaders are just pointing towards. Hit your KPIs and you become somewhat robotic because of that factor. So the, the, the people-centric or the people element is removed. And the people in the call center that you're talking to, sometimes they don't have a choice behind that because they've, one, they're either not properly trained or properly equipped or properly guided for them to actually make those decisions or for themselves to, to help other people on the other side of the line. So I think we have to look at it from a dual concept, which is not necessarily their fault. Sometimes it's the leaders who ironically is the one who are actually making the decision, but they're not the one who is doing the job. So there is that disconnection there as well. In my ideal world, I think when we look at, for example, the NDIs or any social services um, for that matter is it's not a high priority for a lot of both politicians and executives. It's not. It's more, okay, we, these people, and I don't mean it as um, derogatory or anything like that, these people are viewed as a drain and we're not going, we shouldn't need to spend all this money on them. And, and that is just wrong because what the NDIS stand for or what the NDA is supposed to stand for, it's about helping people to access community, helping them to be better. And when you're going to remove that or you have a disconnection because this is what you're saying, but this is what you're doing and it's not connecting properly. It's, it's like you're using a, a triangle to, to fit into a circle and it's, it's just not fitting. And it's time for people to stop viewing it this way as what we can get in or what our friends who have contracts can get in. This is where, you know, I think sometimes there is this underlying corruption that we need to address and we need to factor in and we need to root out for the NDAs and human services across Australia works the way how it's supposed to work, which is people-centric. Right answer. Very well put. I I love that. That was awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jason, for coming on our podcast and allowing us to grill you with questions. And well, thank you for having me. I really love what you're doing and the support that you're giving Sam is is just great. And I know that Sam couldn't do it without you. <laughs> That's a true statement. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for letting us uh, let me uh, hijack an episode, Hannah. <laughs> Anytime, <laughs> Sam. But I have had a number of providers actually reach out in regards to whether or not uh, we're doing a pace update. And I thought we might just drop in that our pace update will be out on next Monday, which will be the 13th of November. Yes. Well, thank you all for listening. Huzzah! Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.